naked and afraid, running wild with bare grills, man versus wild, survival stories, dual survivor, alone. These are just a few of the treasures you can watch on TV, especially if you're into survival scenarios. In each one of these shows, one or two people are dropped off in some remote place with certain tools or pieces of survival gear just to see how long they can make it. My personal favorite is called Alone. It airs on the History Channel. I'm not sure why. I I don't know what's historical about surviving alone, except maybe, hey, I did it. But Alone is what it's called. It's on the History Channel. Now, what they do is they take 10 guys... All of them have a certain survival skill that they have mastered. Uh, maybe that one can make fire, or, but they all have a different survival skill. And they, they get each one of them, and they get to choose a certain number of items, three or four items that's in a bag, uh, and, and then they're dropped off with small video cameras and a solar charging set. And they're all dropped off on the same island, but at different points. They're roughly 12 to 20 miles away from each other. And the rules to this game called Alone is pretty simple. You stay in your area and survive alone. Part of the gear they get is a satellite phone. And at any moment, they can call and be extracted to be saved from their aloneness, if you will. Now, the last person to be removed from the island wins the game and a whole lot of money because it wouldn't be a game if there wasn't a big prize. And so they they win all this stuff, but the catch is, they don't know when the other contestants have given up. So you've got 10 people on an island, and, and you may call out within 24 hours, but the other nine don't know that you've been removed from the island. And so it truly is just a one man alone on an island. I, I like to call this survival solitaire because you just don't know. You're just playing against yourself to see how long you can make it because you don't know how long the other guys have made it. Here's the unique thing. Every one of those men... Within the first 24 hours of starting the game, they, they get their area, they, they find this is high ground, there's, there's some water, there's you know bugs to eat. They start scouting things out, they figure things out, and every one of them, within the 20, first 24 hours after setting up camp, day one, they're settling in for the night, and on the little video camera, it's, it's dark, it's an infrared, so it's a real grainy, it's not even a good picture, and they're looking at this little camera, and they always say something like this, I've never been somewhere so dark. And they look up and they try to show the camera and it's just like either trees or there's no stars and it's just pitch black. And then they go, I've never been so alone. Every one of them says that. And my first thought is, well, what did you think was going to (laughs) happen? I don't get that. You signed up to do this. Of course you're going to be alone. Never been somewhere so alone. One guy, the first season I watched it, he actually talked about, he was like, he had the camera, and it's all over his face, he's like, the feeling of aloneness. And he's looking around to make sure he's really alone. He's like, it's suffocating. And I thought, dude, count to 10. You're not going to make it. You're not making it through the first night. <laughs> I felt bad for him. He was like, in the, in the preview, he's like, I did this, and I survived this, and you know, I can do all these great things by myself. And then here he is in the middle of the night going, It's suffocating. It's so alone. How about you? You ever been there? You ever felt so alone that it felt like you were suffocating? Some people have said to me, I can be in a room full of people and still feel alone. 
Is, is that you? Are you around people all day long, but your reality is you're alone? Some of you are like, yeah, that is me. So what's the cause of the aloneness? Sometimes it could just be a storm of life that we are going through or a rough time at work. And we look around for some support or encouragement. We realize that everybody else around us is just doing great at work. And we're like, oh, maybe it's just me. I'm alone. Maybe it's a rough time that your family is going through and you feel like no other family is going through what you're going through. And you, you look around and, and they're smiling and hugging and you're thinking, wow, I don't even want to sit by my family right now and I'm alone. Maybe you just don't make friends all that well. It's not something that's easy for you. And so you go to school or you go to work or you just go through life and you come home every single day alone. That, that crushing presence of alone. And it's suffocating. As you go through these things, you'll probably find out that it's, it's hard to spend time with God. I mean, you mentally, when you mentally and physically feel alone or abandoned or caught up in a storm of life and you really think you're truly alone, it's hard to live your life as a daily act of worship. So what do you do? What is the secret to worshiping God when you're alone? That's what we're going to talk about today. Will you pray with me? Father God, as we come before you right now, I pray that first and foremost, no one in this room will feel that they're alone. I pray that as, as we go through taking a look at King David and some of the things that he endured, that we won't have to feel that way because you are a part of our life and because we are all connected through you. I pray that as we look at your word, we'll be able to apply it to our lives. We'll be able to find people that we can be accountable to. We'll be able to find people that we can do life with and, and not be alone. And Lord, if there is someone here today that's alone, I pray that they would be filled with so much love and connection today that they would know without a doubt, because of you, they are not alone. I pray once again that what we do will honor you. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. King David, at different points in his life, but this time in particular, is in a very rough environment. Everything around him is just what I would call disastrous circumstances. They're beyond his control, too, by the way. It's not necessarily, you could argue that he brought it on himself, but really he didn't. And, and he's in this place, this place of being alone, even though he was, had people around him when he wrote Psalm 63. And what happened was his son Absalom, Absalom had, had started this revolt against David and essentially ran David and some of his family out of the palace. So King David, he flees eastward from Jerusalem through the Judean desert. Most likely it's towards the end of summer. And you can read about all this. Write this down. 2 Samuel 16 and 17. And if you're thinking, I wish I had something really good to read this week. There it is. 2 Samuel 16 and 17. And you can go back and check me on all of the stuff I'm about to tell you today. David escapes to a Levitical city and it's called Mahanaim. Say that. Mahanaim. See, I just taught you a Hebrew word. We'll get to that in a second. He flees to the city, and it's a friendlier region of Gilead, if you will. It's on the other side of the Jordan River. And as we examine this psalm, we're going to see David's desire to worship the Lord, even though he'd been cut off from his kingdom and his palace and, and most of his soldiers. And, and most importantly, he had been cut off from access to the sanctuary in Jerusalem. He uses three metaphors in this psalm 
from his own personal experience to convey his desire of how God might bring this time in his life to pass where he is alone. First one is thirsting for the Lord in the wilderness. You're going to see these in just a second. The second one, he is a satisfaction after a gourmet banquet in the sanctuary. And the third one is following the Lord as his shepherd and trusting in his protection so he can return to the sanctuary and worship the Lord once again. Now, I want to read Psalm 63 with you. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63. And I'm going to read the whole thing. It's 11 verses. And then we're going to break it up and we're going to talk about these three metaphors that David uses as we discover the secret to worshiping God alone. Here we go. Psalm 63, verse 1. You, God, excuse me, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than, my, than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Wow. That's some serious worship right there. This psalm, the, the superscription, the very first thing says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, or in the desert. Now, in the wilderness of Judah, the word wilderness is midbar, okay? And, and the words wilderness and desert are used interchangeably in different translations of the Bible for the Hebrew word midbar, which, which is desert or wilderness. This is important to us today because what you need to know about the wilderness of Judah is that it's composed of a soil type called Sinonian. Sinonian is like a soft chalk, okay? And you're probably trying to figure out what does that have to do with worshiping alone. And it, what it does is it helps us paint just how drastic this picture is. Here's David towards the end of the summer in a desert land, and everything around him is this soft, kind of chalky, just dusty. It doesn't get any drier. It doesn't get any more desolate than where he is right now. And, and so what happens is, is we need to know this because obviously chalky soil, if you will, is not the best place to grow palm trees and, you know, other fruits, vegetables, figs, whatever might be growing in that region. But seasonally, grass and flowers grow there during the rainy season, provides good pasture for a shepherd. You see, Bethlehem, the hometown of David, it was in a transitional zone between the agricultural land of the hill country and Judah and the pastures of the wilderness where David is. And its name, uh, Bethlehem's name, is literally House of Bread, which implies that all around it was plenty of fertile soil around Bethlehem to grow wheat and barley and things like that. And yet just to the east was this place for shepherding. And as we look at the secret to worshiping God alone, David is a good example of this because even though he had his large family around him, there's three periods in David's life when he was in the Judean desert in this place of dryness, of no growth, of nothing pretty, and, and, and for each period, 
they're important lessons for us to learn from David. First off, for young David in that same wilderness of Judah, it was a place of growing and learning. He's tending the sheep, all right? He's still out there alone, though. While he's doing this, 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 37 shares with us how David honed his hunting skills by killing a lion and a bear. You see, when you look back to young David as a shepherd, he had a lot of time to practice using his slingshot, if you will, and his preparation paid off when he went big game hunting in the Valley of Elah and bagged the giant Goliath. So it may have seemed as a teenager, and this is for the younger folks you need to listen to this, as a teenager, you may think, I'm out here doing this stupid job, mowing the yard, watching the sheep. The reality is, God was preparing David for something much bigger. So it may seem like mowing the yard, but we're teaching you something. You have to keep growing to figure out what that is. But there was plenty of time also in the desert for David to fine-tune his musical talents as well. We learn later that the Lord used David and his skillful heart playing to calm down the distressing spirit that came over King Saul. So again, this opportunity of where David is alone, and he's thinking, what could I be doing? I'll play my harp. I'll practice my, with my sling. He's, God is setting him up uh, for protection, for to be successful. Okay, The Lord used these things, and he used David's musical abilities to bless and instruct the souls of men and women throughout the ages as we sing some of these psalms, like Psalm 63. This psalm was composed in the desert. You wouldn't really know that if you just read it without any of that backstory. You would just think, wow, David said some really cool stuff about God here. But David was alone. When he wrote this, even though he, he was amongst company, he was alone. And being alone in the wilderness isn't always all that bad. Especially when you realize you're not alone when God is there too. You see, for David, the wilderness offered solitude and quiet times where he could contemplate the Lord and his ways and his attributes. Imagine David at night tending his flock. They're all asleep. He's already sung them to sleep with his harp or whatever. And he sees the majestic starlit sky. And he writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Now, he may not have been able to hear 47 Tuck and the Vela Pulsar that we shared with you last week, but he knew something amazing was going on up there. And he worshiped God alone because of it. He knew God was doing something. While he was in the wilderness, David also learned some lessons in shepherding that would be helpful when God called him to shepherd his people Israel later, when he called him to be the king. And David realized it was the Lord who was his shepherd. You see, those of us who are supposed to shepherd our family, we have to realize that God is our shepherd. You're not going to lead your family well if you're not following God well. It's the same thing here with David. The second time that David spent out in the Judean desert was during his flight from Saul. King Saul is chasing David because he's jealous and he's angry. And, and so the, then the, the final time that he's in the desert is what we're going to talk about today, where he has, he has ran away from Absalom. And this eternal evidence of Psalm 63 suggests that the historical setting is during this time where he was running from Absalom. It was composed after David had been king and after he had seen the Ark of the Covenant. He'd already witnessed some of these things. And, and here in Psalm 63, David longs to worship the Lord in the sanctuary of Jerusalem. But he can't because he's out in the wilderness of Judea and he's fleeing not just from his son, but from his old army. The old army that he used to command is now chasing him because of his son. And they're looking to kill him. So even during this time of abandonment, 
His confidence in the Lord is steadfast. His covenant love of God, because he knows it's better than life itself. And he writes this psalm. He trusts the Lord to protect him from his enemies so that he will again be able to rejoice and praise God in the sanctuary. He knows eventually he's going to go back. He just doesn't know when. Look at Psalm 63 again. We're going to touch on the first ones. David begins with a declaration of faith. He says, oh, God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. David declares his faith in the Lord as his personal God. You, God, are my God. God wasn't an idol to David. He wasn't something made of gold or silver or wood or stone. He was the living God who acted in history and was immediately involved in David's life. David had a personal relationship with the Lord. Today, we can have that same personal relationship with the Lord through his son, Jesus Christ. Our personal relationship with the living God begins by realizing we are sinners and that we have offended a holy God. Our sin separates us from God. And yet God reached down to his creation, to his creatures, us, by sending his son Jesus to earth to live a perfect life, not sinning, and then dying on the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem alone in order to be the perfect sacrifice to pay for all of our sins. Jesus did the hard part to reconcile us to God. He died, but three days later, he he was bodily resurrected from the dead and he demonstrated that all sin had been paid for and that Satan had been defeated and death had been conquered and he offers salvation to us as a free gift. And like David, we will never be alone again when we accept this gift. In this verse, we also see David's purpose, his priority in life, if you will. He says, early will I seek you. His purpose in life was to seek the Lord in his face. He, this he could do in the tent sanctuary that rested near his palace back in Jerusalem. But he couldn't do it where he was in, in the desert at this point. But his priority when he was in his palace was to go early. Apparently early in the morning. The passage suggests that the first thing he did in the morning was leave the palace and visit the Lord in the tent sanctuary. And here David's soul is thirsting for God in the wilderness. Verse 1, he says, you God are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and behold your power and glory. Because your love is better than my life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. Look, I get a flat tire and I'm angry. And David is out here in, the, in nothing and saying, no matter this, I will praise you. David uses what's called hyperbolic language to describe his longing for the presence of the Lord in his sanctuary. This desert is dry. It's chalky. It's a thirsty land. There's no water. And David, when he was a shepherd, he knew where the springs were and the water holes were. Even in the summertime, the desert is dry, but a good shepherd knows where the places are where you can get water for your sheep. And his language expresses the fact that he is totally cut off from the Lord. It's evident physically that he is not anywhere near the sanctuary in Jerusalem. And the people with David, however, were hungry and weary and thirsty when they got to this place, to Mahanaim. And there they found some sanctuary. Now, from watching all of my survival shows, I have learned a lot. And I have the utmost respect for the sun and the dry heat in the desert in the summertime. I've watched Bear Grylls make that trek all by himself. And the air is so dry that your perspiration evaporates. And he talks about you won't even know 
when you start to become dehydrated because your body doesn't react the same way that it normally does. It's a dangerous place to be without a little bit of water. And David wants to make sure that that spiritually he doesn't drift to where he is physically. And he says, in a dry and thirsty land, I will still seek you. I will still praise you with my lips. The second verse, David reminisces about the power and glory of God in the sanctuary. He learned early in his reign after he conquered Jerusalem, he brought the Ark of the Covenant back up to Jerusalem and, and he placed it in a tent dwelling. And he had the desire to build a house for the Lord, but he wasn't allowed to because he was a man of war and he had blood on his hands. But even still, God made a covenant with him and stated that his own son would build a house for the Lord and that one of his sons would sit upon the throne of the Lord, excuse me, would sit upon the throne of David forever and ever. After this covenant was made, David went into the tent and he sat before the Lord and he prayed. Second Samuel 7, 18 through 29 uh, tells you about this. And more than likely, this is where David sees the Ark of the Covenant. He realizes God's strength and his glory on this occasion. And that's what he's drawn back to. Now, here's David. He flees from Absalom. The Levites bring the Ark of the Covenant out of Jerusalem. And David said, take it back. It doesn't belong out here with me. Take it back to Jerusalem. He said to Zadok, the priest or the Levite, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. Do you do that when you're alone? Do you say, hold hold on, I'm going to come back to where you are, God. I'm in a bad spot, but I'm going to come back. No, typically we continue going the opposite direction. But David said, no, you take the the Ark of the Covenant back where it belongs. And if I find favor in God's eyes, he's going to bring me back. And he's going to show me the Ark. And he's going to show me his glory again. He says, but if I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. He has a desire to worship God. He has a desire to go back to his palace and to Jerusalem and to the ark. But he says, but if God has a different plan, it's okay. I will delight in God's plan. If we're to stay out here forever, he was prepared to delight in God's plan. David resigned his fate to the Lord, but was fully confident in God's sovereignty and God's loving kindness. And he lived it out. And in verse three, David declares, the Lord's loving kindness is better than life. Better than life. Because he understood this important attribute of God. David said that even with parched lips, he would praise the Lord. Dying of thirst, I will praise you. He blessed the Lord by lifting up his hands. And he would do this for the rest of his life. 63 verse 4. David, David's soul is satisfied in the Lord as after a gourmet banquet. Think about that. I know we like to eat. Not just me. I've seen you all. Go to the buffet. You know what? That Thanksgiving meal, you walk away and you're so satisfied. And that's that's where David's soul is. He says, I will be fully satisfied. Verse five, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. He says, on my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. Although David was thirsty because of the dryness of the wilderness, he was satisfied and spiritually content because his confidence was in the Lord and in God's promises. Are you confident in the Lord? Are you confident that our God keeps his promises? As the king lay awake that night, contemplating the loving kindness of the Lord, he was reminded of the sacrifices that were offered in the sanctuary. And he he said he was satisfied like he had the best and richest foods. 
David could be contemplating a banquet in his palace, but it's more likely he was thinking about the sacrifices in the sanctuary. The way things were laid out and his palace was set up as they would burn the sacrifices and the the fat would start to sizzle and it would kind of waft over. They weren't allowed to eat the fat that was set aside for God, but David could smell it. And here he's saying, I would be satisfied like that aroma is to you. And here he is, he's laying awake in the plains of the wilderness near Jericho and he's trying to sort out the day's events and he was thankful to the Lord for his help in getting his followers and his family, this group that was with him, safely out of Jerusalem before Absalom's army was able to approach the city and do harm to them. And he remembered the goodness of God. In, in the middle of this desert place, essentially alone, he remembers the goodness of God and he meditates on the Lord. The word meditate is the same word used in Psalm 1, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. David rejoices in the shadow of God's wings. That's where he's at right now. And twice in this stanza, David praises the Lord with rejoicing in spite of his terrible circumstances. Can you do that? Knowing that God is going to answer your prayer, knowing that God is going to keep his promises, can you rejoice in spite of your terrible circumstance? David has fled over the backside of the Mount of Olives. On the way of doing that, he was cursed by Shimei at Baharim. This is 2 Samuel 16. You need to read this stuff because it's really good. David's servants wanted to behead this guy who just cursed David, but David wouldn't let him. He said, let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing of me this day. We don't think like that anymore. Well, if somebody offends me, I think, man, I hope you get hit by a car when you walk out in the street without looking. That's what we, you know it's true. You're giggling, but it's true. Nobody thinks like that. David said, hey, it's okay. His words don't mean anything to me because I'm still secure in what God would have me do. You see, even when he is fleeing and being cursed by people, David's soul follows his shepherd just as a as a defenseless lamb would. In verses 8 through 10, David sings this, I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for the jackal. I think David kind of turns back. He's thinking about his youth at this point when he's his shepherd days with a defenseless lamb and and how maybe he had picked one up and, and carried it close by for protection. And he says, I will cling to you, God. The right hand of God is always the hand of power and protection. And David was advised by his commanders to stay within the walls of Mahanaim while they went out to fight Absalom's army. You stay here. You stay in this safety. The revolt ended with the slaughter of 20,000 Israelites in the woods of Ephraim and the death of Absalom at the hands of Joab. That's the 2 Samuel 18. Now remember verse 10, David wrote, they will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. Uh, Apparently the bodies of the dead from this battle were eaten by scavengers. And now a scavenger could be anything. It could be a buzzard, it could be a fox, but the reality is in this region, jackals makes more sense because they were kind of like the vacuum cleaners of the desert, if you will. There's pretty much nothing a jackal wouldn't eat. David knows that and he knows that his enemies won't be afforded a proper burial with their families, which was an Israelite custom and a practice. But he knew what was happening. And the only flip side to this coin is that Absalom, his son, 
was placed in a pit in the forest of Ephraim and covered with a huge pile of rocks just to keep the jackals away. But it also symbolized the death of a rebellious son who should be stoned to death, according to Deuteronomy 28, or 21, verse 18. And finally, we have David's declaration of praise because his critics and those people that wanted to do harm to him are silenced. And this is verse 11. He says, But the king will rejoice, the king being himself, will rejoice in God, and all who swear by God will glory in him, in God, not in the king, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. David speaks of himself in a third person as the king. His victory, however, was bittersweet because this revolt had been suppressed. That was a victory, but his son was dead. And, and let me tell you, no matter how rotten your kid is, you don't ever want them, you don't ever wish them death on them. I, I understand that. But on a personal level, David mourned for the death of his son. Yet he says in the psalm that because the revolt was over, the king rejoiced. Again, alone. I can't imagine the rest of the people that were with David were, were mourning for Absalom. He'd, he'd sacked their houses. He'd run them out of town. He was threatening to kill them. We don't typically mourn for our enemies when they have passed away. David and his followers had sworn an oath to the Lord, and they were victorious because they feared him. But those who had not sworn by the Lord were speechless. This is a euphemism for saying they died. Case in point, um, one of the, the people that, that served with Joab, his name was Ahithophel, hung himself. and I'm sorry, who served with Absalom. And then Absalom was killed by Joab and his men. And, and so the first part of the psalm is in the lyrics of a song that's called Step by Step. And it goes like this. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning, and I will learn to walk in your ways. And step by step, you'll lead me, and I will follow you all of my days. You see, there are several lessons we can learn from this psalm, and, and hopefully it will encourage us in our daily walk with the Lord. First one I want to share with you is this. We should, I would like to think that we should get into the practice of singing or reading this particular psalm, 63, at the beginning of our day. I believe it will sharpen our focus on the Lord, and in spite of any less than average circumstances you may find yourself in as we go throughout the day, I think it will help to, to keep our focus where it belongs. You see, also, David and Jesus both set apart time early morning hours for prayer and communion with the Father. If you want to be able to worship God when you're alone, we need to follow their example. We need to set apart a portion of our day for Bible reading, for prayer. The second lesson we can learn from this, from this particular Psalm 63, is that David resigned his fate to a sovereign God who was in control. He knew no matter what was happening, God was in control of the affairs of history. He was content with whatever the Lord had in store for his life and for his future. Whether he lived or died, he would be content because he knew the loving kindness of the Lord was better than life itself. Reality is, as a Christian, the worst thing that can physically happen to us is we can die. But the, the flip side to that is we spend eternity in heaven. God's loving kindness is better. He was content with that. He knew that if he died, he would be the Lord forever. The Apostle Paul had the same attitude when he wrote to the Philippian believers. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Another lesson we can learn from this psalm is that David rejoiced in the Lord in spite of his terrible circumstances. Read Psalm 63 once every day and you will find it's a lot easier to rejoice in your terrible circumstances, whatever they may be. He could do this because he remembered 
the Lord. He meditated on Him and on, on God's ways, not His own. I believe that our contentment and joy is based on Christ's unfailing loving kindness and mercy towards us, not our circumstances. We can't allow our circumstances to dictate our faith. The Lord is always faithful to us, and He can be trusted to get us through our most difficult times. We can live joyfully and triumphantly in the midst of any unpleasant time because we are reminded of the words of Jesus when He said, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Be exceedingly glad, no matter what's going on. The next lesson we can learn is that God will eventually vindicate His children and set things in order. David was confident that those who were trying to take his life would have a reversal of fortune and God would judge them, and he was right. This is a tough lesson to learn because we don't really have control over our future, but we like to. We like to think we do. We see Christians being martyred for the cause of Christ, but yet we we don't see God smiting other people, and we think, well, if I was God, there'd be lightning bolts everywhere. Make no mistake. Ultimately, God will set things in order. In his time, not ours. David saw this happen in his life. The final and probably most important lesson for us is that there is no spiritual refreshment to be gained from watching most of the popular TV shows around, even if they are about survival, or movies, or listening to secular music, or even reading the latest best-selling book. You see, refreshment and sanctification for the soul are found only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As revealed in the Word of God. If you're not starting off your day with that, these other things are going to be what rule your life. It, it's only when we're content and refreshed alone. Listen closely. It's only when we are content and refreshed alone through time spent with God that we can come together and corporately, we can come together corporately to truly worship and sing praises to the Lord Jesus Christ. As part of our response time this morning, I would like for you all to stand and do this responsive reading with me. Now, as soon as we finish, you can go ahead and stand. As we finish this responsive reading, we're going to begin to sing our response song. And as we sing that song, if you're ready to respond to what you've heard from God's Word today, please do. Whether your response is for baptism, for the forgiveness of your sins, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, or maybe you've just found yourself alone lately, and these past few months have been rough, and you realize you've stepped away from God and and you're just out struggling with something. Our elders are here. They'd love to pray with you. As we begin our response time with this reading, will you consider how you will respond to God this morning? O God of my life, I'm lovesick for you in this weary wilderness. I thirst with the deepest longs to love you more, with cravings in my heart that can't be described. Such yearning grips my soul for you, my God. And I will ever praise you. I'm energized every time I enter your heavenly sanctuary to seek more of your power and drink in more of your glory. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. Do you believe that? For your tender mercies mean more to me than life itself. How I love and praise you, O oh God. O oh God, you are my God, and I will Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. 
step you'll lead me and i will follow you all of my days amen it's been great to worship with you all this morning but now it's time to go before you go i would like to share one last thing with you Several times I mentioned the place of where David and his family camped during this time of trial. It's called Mehanaim. Interestingly enough, someone else camped at the exact same spot many years earlier and gave it that name. In Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw them, This is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanaim. You see, this is where Jacob stopped on the way to reconcile with his brother Esau, and he ended up wrestling with God. And he's given a new name, Israel. And it's this very place where David ends up with with kind of a piece of Israel, if you will. The people that stayed with him, they end up in this place. And he and, and his family, they're alone, and they're seeking refuge from Absalom. And that's where they end up, at God's camp. As you go this week, understand that when our soul focuses on God, we're never alone. And when you stop and look around, you may just realize that someone has already walked where you're walking now. And like David, you will be able to take comfort in God and worship Him even when you feel abandoned or alone. Will you sing this last song with us?